Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to another episode of New Books in Sociology. My name is Michael Johnston, and today I have um, I have Maria Vado, uh, Maria Vadovinos Olson with me today uh, to discuss her article, Reentry and Public Policy Solutions Addressing Barriers to Housing and Employment, which is found in Beyond Bars, the Path Forward for 50 Years of Mass Incarceration in the United States by Polity Press. Uh, just this year, 2023. Welcome to the show. Hi, Michael. Thank you so much uh, for having me. I'm really uh, looking forward to this conversation. Excellent. So the uh, first question that I uh, wanted to start off with is, how did you become interested in this uh, collection, Beyond Bars and A Path Forward for 50 Years of Mass Incarceration in the United States? Definitely. Um, So when the opportunity to contribute to this agenda came through my inbox, I was especially intrigued by the focus on articulating a path forward after 50 plus years of mass incarceration in the United States. As I see it, you can't dismantle mass incarceration without seriously considering the structures needed to support successful reentry. And in my dissertation, uh, I'm conducting a multi-level analysis of a reentry services network. And so I thought it would be a great exercise for me as a researcher to think through some broader and more permanent public policy solutions to what I consider to be two of the most critical issues in reentry, housing and employment. Um, As I'm nearing the end of my doctoral studies, I'm very interested in the translational space between research policy and practice. So you said housing is one of the most urgent needs uh, at the point of release from incarceration back into civilization. Uh, Why do you think that is such an urgent need at that point? Yeah, I mean, I can't stress enough how critical housing is for reentry success. Um, Yet many individuals are released from incarceration without access to it. Uh, To me, it's common sense that if you don't have a place to lay your head down at night, it's basically impossible to be a productive member of society. Um, The importance of housing is a constant that I come across when I interview individuals about the challenges of reentry. Returning citizens know firsthand and reentry services providers are also keenly aware of this issue, but they are very limited in what they can do to support their clients. Putting aside the issue of quality for a moment, you know, when you individuals are released from prison, jail, or other types of correctional institutions, overnight they can go from having from the certainty of having a place where they can sleep and get a meal to no guarantee of that at all. Some people are lucky enough to have a strong social support system in place that can help them through this transition. But what about everyone? Everyone else? Um, in my doctoral research, I've looked at state level correctional pre-release planning policies which range considerably in terms of the housing arrangements in place at the point of release. For example, in some states, um, having a written housing plan is a condition of release. And in other states, you're lucky if you get a bus ticket or a phone call to arrange a pickup. And you mentioned this concept of stable housing. 
what what is stable housing and what is available for uh, for the members after they've been after they've been released from um, from incarceration? Stable housing is one thing, but is that always available or what else? What is available? That's a really great question. So a in a 2014 article in the Journal of Community Psychology, Frederick et al. argues that housing stability is a poorly defined concept that lacks standard measures. But broadly, though, I would say that stable housing is a secure shelter arrangement, meaning that you don't have to worry constantly about whether you will have access to it at the end of the day, at the end of the week, or at the end of the month. Um, in general, housing options for the formerly incarcerated are extremely limited. They can include temporary stays with family and friends, transitional housing arrangements such as the halfway house or the homeless shelter, or marginal housing arrangements such as rooming houses, hotels, and motels. Um, another added layer of complexity is that parole conditions typically bar individuals from living with family members or friends who may have criminal records themselves. Depending on the offense committed, you can also have the case where parole conditions bar individuals from living in the vicinity of children or a victim. So all of this limits the types of housing options that are available. Um, finally, another housing option is under federal housing policy, um, Individuals with criminal records for specific offenses, such as drug-related offenses, are often ineligible for subsidized public housing. Um, that's a big one. Another uh, aspect of this, though, is that this type of housing is also in very much limited, very much limited in supply. So even if you do, even if you are eligible for it, you may not necessarily be able to get it. And then, so that means that uh, oftentimes the previously incarcerated who have just been released might find themselves living um, home, living in a homeless situation, being without a home to live in. And does that increase their likelihood of recidivating? Yes, definitely. So uh, housing insecurity and home homelessness is a very unfortunate reality of reentry. Um, according to the Prison Policy Initiative, the formerly incarcerated are significantly more likely to be housing insecure than the general public. Um, however, it's, it's no longer just the formerly incarcerated or individuals with unmanaged substance use disorders or mental health conditions that are at risk of homelessness. Um, given the high cost of living these days, a lot of people are one or two missed paychecks away from losing their homes. Um, according to the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, in 2019, about 20 million renters paid more than 30% of their income on housing. And the burden has only increased post-pandemic due to eviction moratoriums ending, inflation, and other issues. Um, while being homeless is not a crime, it can definitely put you in the, the authorities' crosshairs, especially when it's hyper-visible, such as in the form of encampments. Uh, the criminalization of homelessness is an unfortunate reality um, in response to the rapidly growing problem of housing insecurity in the United States. Um, we have an, an inordinate number of laws that criminalize activities such as sitting, sleeping, or resting in public places such as parks and living in vehicles. Um, in tracking the proliferation of these laws in 187 cities, the National Homelessness Law Center found that between 2006 and 2019, 
Citywide bans on camp camping increased by 92%. Bans on sitting or sleeping in public by 78%. Loitering and panhandling by 103%. And living in vehicles by 213%. And the problem that we have here is that because one of the roles of the police is to enforce laws, we really need to understand more about how the police perceive and approach this issue. Um, I recommend anyone interested in this question to follow the work of Dr. Katherine Brown, who recently completed her dissertation at Arizona State University on this topic. You know, and that's a really interesting um, uh, thing as well with homelessness is it it might even increase the risk of them going and finding illegitimate means to the resources that they need as a result of um, finding a job may require a person will likely require a person to have a phone or even an address. And if they, uh, without a home, uh, the person might find themselves having difficulty finding a job. uh, And then without a job, may find themselves having a difficult time to uh, have a phone available to them to be able to get a job. So it turns into a a cyclical uh, process, a cycle that continues to put that person at at a great disadvantage. Absolutely. We all have basic needs that we need to meet to survive. And truthfully, I can't say that if I were in that situation, I myself wouldn't have to resort to illegitimate means, right? To feed myself, to clothe myself, etc. So this is, um, this is definitely a revolving door situation um, that needs to be better addressed. And then to change the mindset as well of uh, of the police, as you mentioned, and employers and other people within the community, uh, in order to have a you know a, a different response to the fear uh, that is um, then applied through you know stigma. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Definitely. So one of the other interesting things that I found about homelessness as being the uh, you know, the, one of the first problems is this concept of private housing and public housing. Uh, I never really thought of those, uh, you know, housing being separated between those two. What is public housing? What is private housing? Yeah, so private housing uh, or the rental market is uh, refers to non-public housing, so such as a house, apartment, or a mobile home. So what that means is for private housing, you have a right to that housing, either because you own it or you have legal access to it through some sort of contractual arrangement, such as a lease. So that's what private housing is versus public housing, which does, don't have that. They don't have those protections in place for people. And so a lot of, uh, of the options that I described to you are public housing options. Um, I think this is important in relation to the problem of reentry because private housing is essentially the bulk of the U.S. housing stock, right? And when it comes to that, it is vastly underregulated because of it. So in terms of applicant screening practices, this typically includes checking for criminal history, which of course, to no one's surprise, negatively and disproportionately impacts individuals with criminal records, right? So it all feeds into each other. Um, not too long ago, recognizing how significant discrimination is on the basis of criminal history, the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development provided landlords and property managers with housing 
uh, with guidance on how the Fair Housing Act um, could be used to uh, give people protections if they have criminal records, right? Initially, it was uh, enacted to protect individuals and families from discrimination, but not necessarily considering criminal records. So it's a natural extension of that if this is one way in which uh, individuals are discriminated criminal records. But even so, landlords and property managers are unlikely to consider applicants with criminal records over applicants without such records. We know this from experimental studies of tenant screening and criminal records, which underscores the prevalence of landlord discrimination against applicants that have criminal histories. I will say that truthfully, when you consider that one in three Americans has a criminal record. The notion that between 70 and 100 million individuals could be denied access to housing at any given time should be a much larger cause for concern than it seems to be. And then I would assume that there are certain places in the United States where it impacts uh, uh, people disproportionately to others. Did you look into that at all? No, not not in that level of detail, although you can imagine that high cost of living areas, um, it's a bigger problem, or um, rural areas where there may be low housing opt- or low housing stock, um, vast distances to cover, for example, if you don't have a car, right, it makes it difficult to live in these types of areas where there's like a vast geographical uh, territory or expanse. And then the other part, the other major need for um, individuals leaving, uh, leaving incarceration, but for all people in general uh, as well, is employability. What do you see? Um, what do you see about employability as being a very significant uh, thing for those who recently have been released from incarceration? So. Incarceration impacts employability in a number of key ways, and a lot of these are tied to the social stigma that comes from having a criminal record. So the unfortunate thing about a criminal record is that it really doesn't matter if your record is because of a low-level arrest or a felony conviction, right? Either way, if you have one, you will encounter repercussions when it comes to uh, employment. Again, this is a consistent finding. We know this to be a consistent finding in experimental audit studies that have looked at um, the employment outcomes of two types of of groups of uh, employee seekers, those with criminal records and those without. And of course, individuals with a criminal record are less likely to get a call back when applying for jobs. So what is the fear? What do you think the fear is in hiring this population? Yeah, so social stigmas are interesting. They are uh, very negative attitudes, prejudices, or false beliefs that are associated with specific traits or circumstances, such as being incarcerated. It's a very powerful discrediting force. And so in follow-up interviews, um, where we, you know, interview uh, employers have been interviewed about their feelings or their concerns in hiring individuals with criminal records, they've expressed uh, concerns over, um, or they've they've communicated fear of victimization by the individual. They've communicated the belief that the formerly incarcerated lack people skills for customer interaction. They've communicated trepidation over customer reactions to having an employee that he has criminal record, and they've also communicated doubt that the individual can be a trustworthy 
and reliable employee. Um, but even though stigmas are powerful, they can most definitely be challenged. Um, the same line of research appears to indicate that when um, employers have an opportunity to actually sit down with applicants and read them as people, as human beings, um, applicants and applicants have an opportunity to explain their record or their background, what led to them committing an offense, for example. Um, these stereotypes can be overcome. Yeah, I think there's this uh, there's this project maybe called Ban the Box, and I think that it would be interesting to. Uh, I've seen research done where if a uh, name has been re- removed from an application or a more white name is listed on an application, and white people being more likely to be selected for a job over. Uh, a person of color, but it would be interesting to see a similar study to see if the perception of the person changes based on whether it's knowing that that knowing that that person has a felony or some sort of a criminal offense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I find ban the box very interesting. So the logic behind ban the box laws and policies is that delaying inquiry into an applicant's criminal history until after the interview or job offer stage should improve employment outcomes, right? So what we found is that these laws have, or these policies have led to modest increases in callback and hiring rates. But their implementation has also been quite eye-opening with respect to how employers react when they cannot query an applicant's criminal history early on. And so What researchers have found is that when this happens, when employers cannot access this information early on in the hiring process, they're likely to default to stereotypes that lead them to exclude individuals and entire groups from consideration based on those stereotypes. Similar to the earlier, similar to the earlier research I was just talking about, right? Exactly, exactly. So, this has especially, um, if you if you can imagine, this has especially harmed the employment prospects of African-American men, right? Um, so in the some of the audit studies, we found that um, individuals with criminal records um, get less callbacks than individuals without criminal records. But when you include, you factor in race, um, white applicants with criminal records sometimes get more callbacks than black applicants without criminal records. So it's a very interesting um, kind of uh, insight into the intersections between race and um, incarceration or uh, criminal records. So it means well, but it has had some um, some harm, some harm after uh, well from backlash of the consequences of ban the box for the employer. Yeah, yeah. There, there definitely have been modest positive impacts, but they have also uh, provided us really valuable insight into, like I said, how employers react. And so this is something that, you know, should be considered when um, revising these types of laws or proposing um, alternate types of laws Right. Like all of these findings should lead us to improve upon these policies. Um, So what solutions do you recommend for helping the reentry process of formerly incarcerated people and creating a more uh, sustainable practice to reduce recidivism? What 
what are some recommendations that you have? Thinking through public policy solutions was absolutely my favorite part of writing this chapter. Uh, well, they have value. Like I said, short-term programmatic solutions will not make the substantive impact needed to address the massive problem of reentry in the United States. Uh, what I appreciate about ban the box legislation is that it was an effort to experiment with a larger, more institutionalized solution with the potential to lead to standardized laws, regulations, guidelines, and actions. While imperfect, like I said, there have been gains, and we have learned from it. Um, and all of this, these gains and this knowledge can inform subsequent iterations of the policy. In my specific chapter, I write about a couple of different policy solutions um, that I think could potentially help address what I consider to be key systemic barriers to reintegration in housing and employment. Um, one of them is to expand employer incentives for hiring formerly incarcerated individuals. Employer incentives for hiring formerly incarcerated individuals benefit employers, uh, such as in the form of a tax break via the work opportunity tax credit, wage reimbursements, and employment retention grants. There is some evidence already to support this as a promising solution. Um, in a recent field experiment, Colin and colleagues found that uh, willingness to hire individuals with criminal records rose from 39% to over 50% when there was an incentive in place. And some of the incentives that the hiring managers responded favorably to were crime and safety insurance, the availability of a past positive performance review for the uh, potential job applicant, and the option to run a more limited criminal record check covering the past year. Uh, another positive thing about incentivizing employers is that it can potentially help grow the coalition of employers known to hire formerly incarcerated individuals. Knowing what employers are second chance employers allows individuals to direct their job search efforts to the places where they actually have a higher chance of successfully obtaining employment. Um, the incentives themselves also create a framework for individuals to be able to have frank conversations with potential employers about their criminal histories, which can potentially increase the likelihood of a positive employment outcome. Oh, and increase their visibility, I think, definitely, and, and creating a closer relationship, a bond between uh, employer and employee. One of the things that um, I'm a proponent of is restorative justice, restoring the relationship between the offender and offendee um, to realize that there's more to the person than the offense. I think the same framework is used in mental disorders, right? The, the person is more than the mental disorder that they have the offender is more than the offense that they committed. It could have been circumstance. Definitely, definitely. And also, too, when um, when employers can see other employers that are, you know, engaging in these types of practices and they can get a sense of how to make it work and that it, you know, it's not this terrible thing, nothing terrible is going to happen, other businesses will be more inclined right, to, to want to participate in these types of programs to incentivize them, right? There are benefits to the employers. And when there are benefits to the employers, I think employers are more willing to entertain um, hiring individuals with criminal records. 
Uh, a second possible solution, which I think is an interesting one, um, but a ra also rather complicated one, is a certificate of rehabilitation for employment and tenancy. So a certificate of rehabilitation, relief for rehabilitation, um, COR in shorthand, it's an official document indicating that the Department of Rehabilitation and Corrections and the court have done their due diligence, uh, their due investigative diligence, and have deemed the person to be successfully rehabilitated. Employers who hire certificate holders have legal protections against potential negligent hiring lawsuits, which is really a big fear of employers in hiring individuals with non-criminal histories. So CORs can also function as an employer incentive. Um, the unfortunate thing about CORs is that there's considerable variation in how states have structured the requirements for obtaining the certificates. Right. So again, as has been the case with ban the box legislation, experimentation with CORs has provided valuable insight into how to make this type of legal remedy more effective. Right. Nothing is perfect, um, especially in its first iteration. So one way is to pair CORs with anti-discrimination legislation, compelling employers to articulate a reason for rejection beyond the criminal conviction. So this really forces the employers to document that that their you know that their decision to not hire that person is um, is a legitimate reason, and it's not just uh, tied to the stigma of that person having a criminal record. Um, another promising insight that we've gained from experimentation with uh, CORs is that they it seems like they can provide relief for collateral consequences in other areas outside of employment. So there was an experiment conducted by Leisure and Martin um, on criminal records and housing, and they found that Ohio's Certificate of Qualification for Employment, which is their version of the COR, actually improved the likelihood of individuals with criminal records being considered potential tenants, which is, you know, really significant finding and something that, you know, should be investigated further. So a great area for PhD students to, you know, definitely dive into and, and, and run with. Um, let's see, another, a third option that I talk about in my chapter is uh, the option to reform the criminal history reporting system and the idea of time-limited records. So in most states, criminal records are public, right? And it is just like way too easy for you or me to be nosy and query individuals' criminal histories, like just way too easy. So for those interested in learning more about the problem of criminal record keeping, accessibility, and then its consequences, um, especially in the digital age, I definitely recommend you to check out Sarah Logison's book, Digital Punishment. Uh, one of the consequences tied to the, the wide availability of criminal records is the rise of the background checking industry. Uh, so it's Low cost, at a nominal cost, employers and landlords can gain access to criminal histories that are new and old. And the problem with this is that individuals can continue to be denied employment and housing for transgressions that may have happened a decade or more ago. I've definitely heard this in interviews that I've had with individuals um, that um, are formerly incarcerated and the challenges that they've encountered in reentry. Um, you know, they can have 
they can have successfully secured a job, for example, have good references and all of that, but they still cannot, you know, secure housing, right? Um, because of that criminal record, right? Doesn't even matter if it's 20 or 30 years ago. I mean, it's amazing. And the person doesn't even have to be, the person doesn't even have to be found guilty. It could just simply be news reporting. And then all of a sudden that name, person's name and picture shows up as well. Exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, criminal histories contain all kinds of information, right? So it can contain information about an arrest that didn't go anywhere. It can contain information about a actual conviction. I mean, just all kinds of information that, you know, will negatively impact you. Uh, doesn't matter, you know, if it was low level or a felony, if it was nonviolent or violent, right? Um, it's, it's really a, a very unfortunate thing. Um, but as far as a solution to this, uh, sociologist Diva Pager has argued that the Fair Credit Reporting Act of 2002 offers precedence for imposing time limits on the distribution of criminal records. Um, this is really insightful in my opinion. So much in the same way that the FCRA regulates how consumer credit reporting agencies can collect, access, use, and share data, including imposing a time limit on the reporting of negative information on credit reports, states could enact a Fair Criminal History Reporting Act, right? So this was, this was uh, Diva's thought on this. Um, as an act that regulates uh, criminal history uh, or criminal record reporting systems, including how criminal record information can be accessed and used for employment and tenancy purposes. So for example, with you know your uh, credit history, right? Like negative information goes away after a certain number of years, right? The idea being that why couldn't that be the case with criminal history, you know, with parameters in place, of course. So it sounds like to me that there's no one single solution to um, solving the problem of, you know, getting formerly incarcerated people um, into um, employment and into housing uh, more quickly without all of the, um, you know, stigma associated with the label of formerly incarcerated. Uh, however, it seems like that there are multiple things that could be implemented all at uh, you know, all at once to, uh, to, to, to provide the assistance that they need, that they need. Is yeah. that accurate? Yeah, there's definitely quite a few things. The last possible option I write about is the idea of uh, state level adoption of fair chance legislation, right? So in 2017, Congress passed the fair chance to compete for jobs act. And that act prohibits the federal government and federal contractors from querying applicant criminal histories until after a conditional offer of employment has been made. So at that stage, after the conditional offer is made, employers can then use criminal history information to rescind employment only if the offense is directly related to the position or there's a legitimate business-related reason. So for example, let's say that you are applying to work in accounts payable for a government agency and your offense was for check forgery. Well, in that case, it makes more sense, right, that your job offer might get rescinded than if your offense was for public intoxication when you were in your early 20s. 
Um, so the idea being here, the idea here would be that states could adopt fair chance legislation to regulate and restrict the use of criminal history by private employers as well. Um, so in addition to applying fair chance standards to private employers, another area where states could really uh, make a difference is in applying these standards to their own occupational licensing boards. There's an incredible number of jobs that require a license in order for you to be able to perform them. Um, according to the Institute for Justice, one out of every five Americans needs some sort of a license in order to work. But many state boards deny licenses on the basis of a criminal record. So taking this uh, fair chance legislation or model into consideration, states could potentially require licensing boards to also adopt a directly related policy standard, right? That allows the board to deny licenses only in cases where the criminal record contains adjudicated offenses that are directly related to the type of license being sought, right? Um, finally, I think concerning tenancy, we could also look to, fair to the Fair Housing Act of 1968, which was amended in 1988 to protect individuals and families from discrimination on the basis of race, color, religion, sex, disability, family status, and national origin. I think we, you know, most of us are familiar with this. But given how significant discrimination is on the basis of criminal history, you know, why couldn't the federal government consider including criminal history as a protected class, right, with a fair screening provision um, that limits tenancy decisions to other requirements, such as income and references, right? Important requirements, right? Landlords need to know that you uh, that you can pay your rent and that you are going to be a good tenant. Uh, so those are important considerations. But puts this, you know, consideration of criminal record aside until after the conditional tenancy approval has been made. Um, at this stage, the idea would be that landlords could consider criminal history, right, to the extent that the record objectively suggests, right, that the individual poses a direct threat to public safety of others. Uh, so, I mean, these are all different kinds of solutions that could really be put into play at the same time, right, if we really wanted to. So I can't say that I know that these are the right solutions, but but the ultimate key takeaway I, I would want um, from ending this conversation is that uh, we can't know if these proposed solutions are possible or not, right or wrong, smart or naive, perfect or imperfect, etc. if we don't try them out, right? So that's what I like so much about the band the box uh, experiment is that we tried it out and we learned some things that can really help to improve uh, subsequent iterations of that particular policy. Um, same here, right? These proposed policy solutions um, in their first iteration may not be right, but you can't possibly know that if you don't test them out, put them into play. Oh, and you know, I think about uh, um, people who are incarcerated in the uh, universities that are going into the prisons to provide education um, as well as uh, online uh, online universities that are providing the incarcerated with education as well as the work programs within the prisons that are providing them with real skills that can be used in labor after they uh, after they are released. The issue with those is none of those skills can be put to work if the employers outside of the prison walls see them as uh, unemployable. 
So I, I really like how you've paired this then with the, uh, you know, well, let's look at what it looks like for these people after they are released after, uh, from incarceration. One of the, one of the, like, just, uh, I don't, I don't even know how to put it, but like one of the contradictions that like always just catches me because it's so ridiculous in my opinion is that for example, one of the skills that you, you may gain while incarcerated is learning how to cut hair, right? But to actually cut hair, you need a license. And if you can't get one, you can't cut hair. And why couldn't you cut hair with, I mean, with having a criminal record? As far as I know, there is, I can't think of, of, of an offense that is tied to cutting hair that should prohibit you from cutting hair in the future, right? I mean, I know that there are bad haircuts, but still, I don't know that they would rise to the level of criminal, right? Yeah. And then there, and, and, and many of them are really good at it because they probably were known as the prison barber, uh, similar to how, you know, at my campus, uh, the community of Oskaloosa, Iowa is, is mostly white, and we have a large, uh, a large ethnic community on, communi- uh, on campus, who, who don't trust white people to, to cut their hair. So we have campus barbers who are going around and doing that and gaining you know a lucrative skill while on campus that maybe they don't plan on being uh, owning their own salon or barbershop. However, we do have business entrepreneurship on campus and some of them might see that as a, uh, as, as a, a possible business for them. And then having the uh, classroom skills to be able to create a lucrative business um, by being able to, balance the budget and all that other stuff on top of it but um yeah i don't see licensing doesn't seem to be it seems to be an unnecessary barricade preventing them from being able to um become providing uh contributing citizens to society Mm -hmm. absolutely um and that's why i'm so interested in these like more structural um systemic issues, right, or or barriers that are in place um, that bar people from actually being able to successfully reintegrate, right? Um, This is is an important problem. If we really are serious about moving beyond mass incarceration, moving forward, right, which is like the focus of this particular uh, book, right, 50 years um, beyond bars, right, 50 years in the future, uh, or after 50 years of mass incarceration. So if we really are serious about that, then we really need to start um, targeting these um, systemic barriers to reintegration for people. And there's a whole other area of uh, for-profit prisons, which really scares the bejeebers out of me, but that's a different topic for a different different, different day. For a different day, yes. Yes. So where is your research going now? I, I know that we're out of time uh, for for what we're currently talking about, but I'm always interested in, you know, my guests and what they're working on now. Sure. Yeah. So I have a lot of projects up in the air right now, but my priority project of course is my dissertation. Um, So for my dissertation, I'm conducting a multi-level analysis of a large reentry services network um, in order to answer the question of how existing and envisioned institutions, systems, and policies can best organize the provision of supportive services for the incarcerated and the fully incarcerated. So in it, I investigate uh, how network governance, organizational practice, and then service need alignment come together to support 
but also undermine reentry success, particularly during that consequential period between pre-release, entry into community corrections, and then eventual release into the community. Excellent. How, how far into the research are you? So I am in my last year, so I'm in the thick of it. Awesome. Getting ready to probably analyze it, well, the analysis part and making your conclusions and 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 then, and then uh, the fun part of defense, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the far part, yeah. I, I don't know. I think it's uh, I think it's a lot more fun than we think it's going to be, actually. So I think there's just like this anxiety tied to it, but when you actually get to it, like for example, this is my first podcast. I was quite anxious about about it because I've never done one before. But you know, once I came to it, I actually enjoyed it very much. So. And you're the master of your content. That's the cool part about uh, the whole dissertation process is becoming a master of something that is, you know, very small like that, but then graduating or near your, your degree or uh, PhD and then being able to go on and expand it outwards and, and see where see where it takes you. Definitely. Excellent. Well, thank you again, Maria, for being part of this show. This has been another episode of New Books in Sociology. Have a great day. Thank you, Michael. Take care.